Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. So as we begin with Galatians 5, which will be our text this evening, I want you to know that I did wrestle greatly with how exactly to break this passage apart. And initially, I was, I was assigned verses 16 through 26, but really I feel like assigned is a loose word. And so I, I took it more as a suggestion, and I decided that I would be preaching on the entirety of chapter 5, because really as I looked at verses 16 through 26, there's almost no way to address the latter half of the passage without at first addressing the former half. And so, uh, Dad was gracious with me, and, and I only received a very brief tongue lashing when he found out it would be the entire <laughs> chapter 5 instead of the, the very end. But really, uh, we are going to be covering a very large portion, and this is an epistle, and so this is a, this is a significant amount of uh, that we're going to try and, and wade through this evening. But we're going to try and get an overview, really, of chapter 5, because it is the pinnacle, really the climax, of the entire book of Galatians. Uh, I know one pastor in particular that I, that I looked at some of his stuff this week, he spent just over three months preaching through chapter 5 of Galatians. So this will be a lot, and there is the possibility that, that we may revisit some of these texts in the future. But for this evening, I want to try and cover chapter 5 in its entirety, and really try and get a grasp of this whole chapter in one sitting as Paul really tries to draw all of his arguments together and, and really make a coherent whole, a coherent summary of this polemical book, Galatians. Before we do that, I want to I begin with a story. A story about a man who refused a pardon. In 1829, two men, George Wilson and James Porter, robbed a United States mail carrier. Both were subsequently captured and tried in a court of law, and in May of 1830, both men were found guilty of multiple charges, including robbery of the mail and putting the life of the driver in jeopardy. Both Wilson and Porter received their sentences. They were both sentenced to execution by hanging, which would be carried out a mere two months later, a far cry from our justice system today, where people wait decades potentially to be executed. Porter was executed on schedule, but Wilson was not. You see, influential friends had pled for mercy to the president, who at the time was Andrew Jackson. Jackson had finally relented and had offered Wilson a pardon. Wilson would only serve 20 years of his prison sentence as opposed to execution by hanging. But amazingly, Wilson refused the pardon. An official report came out stating that Wilson chose to waive and decline any advantage or protection which might be supposed to arise from the pardon. Wilson also stated he had nothing to say and did not wish in any manner to avail himself in order to avoid his sentence. And in many respects, over the course of the book of Galatians, we see a similar pattern. We, we understand the idea of salvation and we understand the idea of justification. And here in this passage, Paul really writes addressing true Christian liberty. And we see, we see multiple facets of salvation, particularly justification and sanctification. We also see a brief glimpse at glorification in this passage, but we'll primarily focus on justification and sanctification. And so this message is going to be both encouraging and convicting from this passage, and, and that's how Paul intended it to be. And we're going to be dealing in large part again with the subject of Christian liberty. This passage demonstrates that as believers, we are empowered to live righteously, and so we must. We are empowered to live righteously, and so we must. First, we'll see tonight that we are freed by Christ for righteousness. In verses 1 through 6, Paul opens chapter 5, and he highlights the work of Jesus' sacrifice to set believers free. Notice verse 1, for freedom... Christ has set us free, but, but we really have to understand what we are being freed from and what we are being freed to. Paul also does not note the freedom that believers enjoy without adding a strong imperative, a strong warning 
of the danger that we face by wandering back into slavery, by subjecting ourselves again to slavery. So first we see this opening phrase, for freedom Christ has set us free. In Christ's redemptive work on the cross, he not only saves us from sin, but he also frees us to live righteously. And really, this, this is a similar text. It has a lot of parallels to, I believe the last passage I spoke on was Titus 2, 11 through 15. And in Titus 2, 11 through 15, we see a lot of similar themes. But both of these passages force us, they call us to have a deeper view of justification. So many times as believers, our view of justification is very, very shallow. We see ourselves as being justified, and this is a point in time. There's no more condemnation, no more judgment if we're believers, no more hell. We're saved from hell, and we're free to live in heaven with Jesus for all eternity. But we fail to miss the sanctification part, right? We, we, we don't understand that we've been freed for a purpose. We're freed, actually, so that we can live righteously. And this is what Paul is really getting at here. We're freed to be free. We're now free to live in a way that pleases God. We're actually free to fulfill the law, you could say, in a way that we were formerly unable to do. The Bible repeatedly talks about uh, unbelievers being held in bondage by their sin. We're dead in our trespasses, but now we're made alive in Christ. We're actually alivened for a purpose, though. To do what? To live sanctified. And so here, Paul's purpose in writing this, we're freed for freedom. And then Paul does what? He says, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul's referencing in verse 1, not just justification. He says you're freed, that's justification, but you're freed for freedom, and that's sanctification. Paul's saying you're freed actually for a purpose. You're freed so that you can live a life that pleases God. Once again, for most believers, we can, we can fall back into this lazy view of salvation where it's a point on a timeline. And, and we can get this very shallow view of salvation and redemption as we focus so much on justification that we forget about sanctification. And so Paul's aim is to remind us of that process. And he makes a similar point in Romans 6, 22. And 23, this is a familiar passage for many of us. He says, But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, the fruit we get leads to what? Sanctification. And how do we get that fruit? We have to first be justified, right? And so here, Paul's really addressing the entirety of the salvific process, and he does what? We see in that verse a little bit of the Christian liberty part, right? In the beginning of verse 1, we see Christian liberty. For freedom Christ has set us free. And again, we focus on that freedom that we have in Christ. But notice immediately what Paul does. For those who would take away from the book of Galatians these antinomian ideas that, that we no longer need the law and the law serves no purpose and we really don't have to obey anything at all as believers in Christ because there's no condemnation. That's not true at all. Because what does Paul do? Read the rest of the verse. He says, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Once again, the, the beauty of this passage and others like it, again, Titus 2, 11 through 15, is that our Christian liberty is immediately counterbalanced by our new responsibility as recipients of grace to be sanctified. You see, as recipients of grace, that grace enables us to live sanctified. That grace actually teaches us to live a life that is righteous before God. And so here, Paul ends verse 1 by saying, Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. No sooner than Paul has finished telling his audience of their newfound freedom in Christ, does he turn right back around and command them to stand firm and not submit themselves to this burden of slavery. Now, there are two burdens, I believe, Paul's commanding the Galatians to avoid. And what are these two burdens? I think, first of all, he's commanding them to avoid the burden of sin. Obviously, sin is, is repeatedly described throughout Scripture as being a bondage and a burden for humanity. But I think he's also, he's also talking about the burden of the law. The burden of the law that grace actually frees us from. And you could even say specifically... He's telling the Galatians not to wander into combining the law and justification by faith, right? This is his point. 
Don't wander back under this burden of the law by saying you have to obey the law in order to be saved, in order to receive this grace. That's not true. And remember the context of Galatians. Is Paul writing to combat these Judaizers who are saying, Jesus is great and all, but you need Jesus and, Jesus and the Mosaic law. That's not biblical. And Paul's writing to say, no, 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 no. Don't, don't submit yourself again to a yoke of slavery. We read in chapter 3, having at first begun by the Spirit, would you now be completed by the flesh? No, that makes no sense at all. It doesn't work that way. The law throughout the New Testament is repeatedly, is repeatedly characterized as almost having this negative work in the life of a believer. The law exists to condemn and to correct us, to stand in judgment over us. And standing in stark contrast to the work of grace and the Holy Spirit, the law has no capability to train, no capability to correct or teach us. In Galatians 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul writes, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Again, in Galatians 3.24, Paul references the law as a schoolmaster or a guardian whose job is to demonstrate our need for Christ. The law serves a specific purpose, and that is to bring us to Christ. Now again, before you would wander off into antinomianism and say, well, then we don't need the law. We don't really have to obey anything at all. Focus again on Galatians 3.10. For all who, what? Rely on works of the law. You see, the problem is not actually the law itself. The problem is reliance on the law to give us or to grant us some kind of righteousness or standing before God. That's not possible, and that's the false doctrine, that's the heresy that Paul is writing to confront. And so Paul continues his, his vehement defense of this false doctrine, against this false doctrine, in verses 2 through 4. Read again with me in verse 2. Paul writes, look, I, Paul, say to you, that, that opening phrase is emphatic. He's saying, look. He, he's saying, behold, or pay attention. I, Paul, the Apostle Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Okay, so again, this is why context is so critical. Remember Paul's purpose as he pens Galatians. He's combating this false doctrine of the Judaizers that, that assert that only by fulfilling the Mosaic law could the Gentiles' believers be added to the kingdom. This is false doctrine. And Paul's saying, conversely, let's, let's not actually believe that. Let's not listen to that heresy. By accepting circumcision, the Galatian believers would have been attempting to earn their salvation by fulfilling the Mosaic Law. They would have been doing exactly what Galatians 3, 10, 11 says don't do. They would have been relying on works of the law to grant them favor with God. This is not how salvation works. Salvation is either by works or by faith. Salvation is either by works or by faith. You say, what are you, what are you talking about? We'll continue in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, Paul says, I, again, I testify, or I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So Paul's going to continue his strong resistance of this false doctrine by stating that those who would accept circumcision will be responsible to keep the entire law. Now you say, where does Paul get that? This theological view is actually powerful and supported by numerous biblical passages. The law is all or nothing. Once again, I, I told you, salvation is either by works or it's by faith. Now you say, wait a minute, I, I thought we couldn't work for our salvation. Well, in a sense, you can't. But also, Paul uses this, this tactic, this argument to say, actually, if you want to try and, and work for your salvation, there is a sense in which you can do that. Even Jesus talks about that. And consider James 2 verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Again, consider Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. The young ruler asks what he can do to inherit eternal life, and Jesus' response to him is to perfectly fulfill the law. In a sense, if you want to turn with me there to Mark chapter 10 for just a moment, Mark chapter 10, and you can mark your place in Galatians 5, but let's go to Mark chapter 10 just briefly. 
And the account of the rich young ruler begins in verse 17, Mark 10, 17. Verse 17 begins, as he was setting out, this is Jesus, as Jesus is setting out on his journey, a, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Now, wait a minute. This, this, this rich young ruler, first of all, let's address from, a, from other parallel passages, we, we know that this young ruler, he's a ruler of a synagogue. This young man is, in effect, he's a Pharisee. He knew the law very, very well. And that's why Jesus' response to him is, you know the commandments. And he quotes the second half of the Ten Commandments. He says, obey your father and mother. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't defraud. And what does he say? Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Wait a minute. Jesus just taught salvation by works. Didn't he? That's what he just said. He said, if you want to do something to inherit eternal life, this is what you can do. Obey the whole law perfectly. In a sense, this is Paul's argument. He's using this tactic to say, if you want salvation by obeying the law, you've got to keep it all. That's the only way it works. If you want to obey the law to earn your salvation, you've got to keep the whole law. And this is what Jesus is teaching to this rich young man. And at the end of the passage, he goes away extremely sorrowful because he's very rich. And he knows full well what Jesus is calling for in salvation. He can't give it. This is the point. And so you can turn back with me to Galatians chapter 5 now. This is Paul's point. It's a similar point. If you want to try and work for your salvation, by all means, just know you have to keep the whole law in order to be saved. In order to be saved by your works, you would have to be perfect, right? Or else what happens in verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, Right? So this whole, this whole crowd that you want to be justified by the law, you want to, you want to kind of have a little bit of, of the Mosaic law and fulfill some of that and also take a little bit of Jesus and faith in Him, and that's how you're going to be saved. That's going to earn you favor with God. No, you guys, instead of earning favor with God, you're severed from Christ. This is a violent word. This is a dramatic word. It's saying you, you are ripped away from Christ. That relationship is no more. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Paul's concluding this, this vehement rejection of such heresy in verse 4 by writing that those who return to the burden of the law would be severed from Christ. They've fallen away from grace. And he's making clear in no uncertain terms that those individuals are lost. They are unregenerate, dead in their trespasses. This is strong, serious language from the Apostle Paul. He's not pulling punches here. If this is the route you choose, you have to keep the entire law in order to be justified that way, and you're not going to be able to do it. You are a lost individual. You are unregenerate. You have no portion with Christ. Scripture is clear that the law serves a, 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 an important purpose in the life of a believer. The law exists to convict us and to bring us to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. However, we must understand one thing clearly from verses 2 through 4, and that is that the paths of justification by faith and justification by works are mutually exclusive. They, they do not coexist in any world. Your Bible never teaches anywhere that by works and by faith you will enter the kingdom of God. It doesn't happen that way. This is Paul's point in chapter 5 of Galatians. These two paths do not work in tandem. They are mutually exclusive. Now in verses 5 and 6, we, we have the contrast of those who would live by faith in verses 5 and 6. Read verses 5 and 6 with me. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So notice, first notice in verses 5 and 6, the grammatical shift from the second person plural to the first person plural. Paul goes from saying, you, 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 to saying, we. He's, he's making this clear distinction. He's trying to clearly distinguish between those who are endorsing the law as a means of, of earning favor with God and he's distinguishing between true believers who, on the other hand, expectantly await the second coming of Christ 
and the full revealing of righteousness in the form of glorification. And this is the third element of salvation that we see in this passage in chapter uh, 5, verse 6. Or excuse me, chapter 5, verse 5. We ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. That hope of righteousness is referring to glorification. Now, while grace is a, is a teacher for us on earth and grace trains us to be sanctified, we also have to understand that grace will never train us to the, to the state of perfection. That is something that we anxiously await. We hopefully await as believers in Christ. We await the second coming for the same purpose. And we talked about that this morning. I love that we talked about that this morning because it really plays in well with the end of verses 5 and 6 here. So true believers, this is a characteristic of all true believers, an eager expectation, a hopefulness for the second coming. And as you look at that word hope, biblical hope is not like human hope like we think of today. I think of particularly sports analogies. I really enjoy sports. And so when I think of this term hope, I think I'm a Panthers fan, and I really hope that after drafting Bryce Young and giving a king's ransom of picks to the Bears, that we're actually going to be decent. And guess what? It doesn't happen. But as believers, our hope is different because our hope is is grounded in something different. Our hope is grounded in God and the promises of God, and we hope because God never lies. We can trust. Biblical hope actually looks more like trust. And so here we see the contrast of those living by faith versus those who attempt to combine works and faith in verse 5. Once again, notice even at the beginning of verse 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Notice that Paul draws attention to the means by which believers expectantly await the second coming. It is through the Spirit and by faith. This is how we await the second coming. It's, it's not just in our own human, again, that own human terms of hope. We, we really wish that this would happen. No, this is in the Spirit. By faith, we are expectantly awaiting the second coming of Christ. Again, this is, this is a mark of all true believers, this eager expectation for the second coming, this hope of glorification. Then Paul finally is summarizing the opening of verse 6 of chapter 5 by writing that circumcision and uncircumcision count for nothing. This is an important reminder lest those believers who are uncircumcised become proud of their circumcision. Read verse 6 with me. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So Paul's doing this reminder just clearly as he spent the entire book arguing this way. He doesn't now want those who are uncircumcised to begin to feel a sense of pride that, well, we're not circumcised, and so that somehow makes us better than those who are. And Paul's saying, no, 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 it doesn't count for anything. One way or another, it doesn't matter. And this is a reminder to us just at the beginning of verse 6. There's nothing inherently wrong with the law. It wasn't that those who were circumcised were somehow condemned now because they were circumcised. That's not the point. The point is that there were those who would rely on circumcision to give them salvation, to complete their salvation. And that's what Paul is vehemently arguing against. Now, what ultimately counts is only faith working through love. Noted Bible scholar Thomas Schreiner summarizes this verse well, noting that neither circumcision or uncircumcision has any significance. The life that pleases God is characterized by trust in God and Christ, and love for others is the fruit or result of that faith. Paul is again pointing us to the fact that as true believers, exercising true faith in Christ will ultimately work itself out in true love for Christ and others. Again, Philippians 2, 13, for it is God who is working in you both to, to, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. That, that word work there in, in Philippians 2, 13, that is actually the same word as in chapter 5, verse 6, the end of this verse, but only faith working through love. That's the same word as Philippians 2, 13, God working in you both to do and to will according to his good purpose. Now, once again, as we would continue in this passage, moving on down to verse 7, Paul is continuing. He shifts back to the second person plural as he speaks again to these false teachers, to those who are being led astray in verse 7. He says what? You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? I I think that verse 7 and following really makes this grammatical shift in verses 5 and 6 only that much more stark. 
Because we have verses 1 through 4 where Paul's saying, you, 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 and he's drawing attention to those who are being led astray. And then verses 5 and 6 where he says, we, and he draws this clear distinction, those who are living by faith and those who are trying to combine works and faith. And then what does he do? He goes back to verse 7. You, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Now, Paul begins verses 7 through 12 by noting how well the Galatians had started in their spiritual race. Now, equating the Christian life to a spiritual race or to an athletic event is a common Pauline analogy, and it's one that makes multiple appearances in the book of Galatians. And so here, Paul spends these six verses calling the believers in the churches of Galatia back to the basics of their salvation. He's calling them back to how they started. You started so well. He even says, you were running well. Later on, in verses 16 and following, he's going to use the phrase, walking in step with the Spirit. And I think that this really serves as a great contrast as the the Galatians started out running. This, This would indicate fast, rapid spiritual growth. They started out well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Again, you almost sense this fatherly tone as Paul returns to this second-person plural voice. Note at first the analogy of the spiritual life being a race, and we're commanded as believers later on in chapter 5 to walk in the Spirit or to keep in step with the Spirit. Again, this, this word running only indicates this was rapid spiritual growth that they experienced at their foundation as a church. In the second half of verse 7, who hindered you from obeying the truth. You, you almost can't help but notice at this point a similar tone to Galatians 3, verses 1 and 3. O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? You sense a very similar tone here as Paul is saying, where did, you, where did you go wrong? How did you fall off the path? You were doing so well. Notice verse 8. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Paul's almost incredulous to the stumbling Galatians. He makes clear that this is not the way they learned Christ, which he also says to the Ephesian believers in Ephesians 4.20. Again, in in a parental tone, you can almost hear Paul saying, what are you doing? This is not how you were raised, right? And now I wish that I had some kids to give some kind of analogy and say, you know, I've told my kids at some point, no, so far in life, I've only been on the receiving end of that (laughs) phrase. (laughs) Where did you go wrong? This is not how you were raised. And this is what Paul is saying here in verse 7. What happened? How did you fall off the path? You were running well. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. This is not the way of Jesus Christ. This is not the gospel that you were originally taught at your founding as a group of churches, of city churches in the area of Galatia. Notice verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, now there's no significant spiritual analogy that should be drawn from this verse and applied to numerous other passages incorrectly. This is literally specifically to be interpreted to the Galatian churches. And Paul is saying, this little faction of believers that is straying, potentially straying from the truth, this could impact the entire church. In the course of baking bread, I guess, I can't speak from experience, but if a little leaven were to make its way into the dough, the leaven would affect all the dough. And Paul's stating this false doctrine must be adamantly rejected. One commentator writes, although the teaching had apparently been accepted by only a very small number of people, unless it was vigorously repudiated, it would in time affect the whole church. This, I believe, is is an important reminder for us as believers, there does come a point in time where we as the church have to take a stand for truth, for theological truth and doctrine, and say, we will not support this. You are straying from from the way. This is not how you learn Christ, and we will not follow in this. There does come a point where that is necessary. And Paul, as a reminder here to these Galatian believers, is saying, if a small faction of you accepts this false doctrine as truth, it will in time affect the entire body. We need to understand the danger of accepting, of tolerating false doctrine within the body of Christ. And so this is really a warning against the spreading or tolerating of false doctrine. Notice verse 10. 
Notice verse 10, Paul continues this warning. In verse 10 he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And Paul finishes off this portion of the text with a very, very strong, even a violent comment to those false teachers who are disrupting this body of believers. And so while warning of the dangers of this false teaching, Paul also expresses his confidence that the believers in Galatia will not succumb to this false doctrine. Notice he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. Then he also pronounces judgment essentially on this, on this one or multiple false teachers who are, who are really advocating for this false doctrine. And so we see Paul addressing those who would pervert the gospel at the end of verse 10. Regardless of the intentions of those who had spread the false gospel, Paul unequivocally states the danger and judgment that awaits false teachers who would pervert the gospel of Christ. These false teachers will no doubt incur eternal consequences for their heresy. And and folks, we see similar things today. We've seen similar things over the last several decades. False teachers who have made lots and lots of money off of people attending seminars and buying books, advocating for, for similar things that the false teachers in Galatia were advocating for. If you just do this, if you just add this formula to Christ, you'll have success in life. You can be saved. Fill in the blank. And Paul's saying that false doctrine will not be tolerated. And men and women who, who advocate for those false doctrines will face eternal consequences for preaching that heresy. This is a, this is a, strong, a strong warning again against the spreading of this false doctrine. Then in verses 11 and 12, Paul moves again. Paul shifts again in the text to now defend his gospel. Paul defends his gospel in verses 11 and 12. Paul had apparently been accused by the false teachers of having preached circumcision at one point as a necessity for salvation. Paul's assertion in verse 11 is that if he had still been preaching preaching circumcision, why was he being persecuted? This teaching would have made him acceptable to the Judaizers and would have removed the offense of the cross. Now, throughout Paul's ministry and throughout the book of Acts, Paul's repeatedly chased around by a faction of Jews who are preaching this same message of false doctrine. They're preaching this same message of works and faith. And Paul's saying, these false teachers that are telling you, I preach this, they're lying. If I was preaching this, why am I being persecuted? Why is this group following me around everywhere I go? You remember Acts 17 and Paul's sermon on on Mars Hill. That opportunity never would have been created if not for a small faction of Jews repeatedly chasing Paul around Asia as he's on his second missionary journey and eventually leading him to Athens. Paul was never supposed to go to Athens. That was impromptu in an effort to get away from these Judaizers who are chasing him and persecuting him. And Paul's saying, if I'm teaching circumcision in this way, why am I still being persecuted? This is not true. Notice... Verse 12, verse 12, Paul ending this, this tirade in a sense, this, this defense of his own gospel and attack of a false gospel by stating that he desires these false teachers would emasculate themselves or, or mutilate themselves. This is purposefully a graphic and terrible thing to wish on somebody, but this is said intentionally to parallel the terrible nature of this false teaching. Paul, in a sense, is is paralleling the terrible nature of this false teaching with his own terrible wish on the false teachers. And in a sense, Paul's Paul's doing a a little bit of wordplay here. He's saying, look, if circumcision is so important, why don't you just go all the way and emasculate yourself? That's essentially what what Paul's doing. He's he's being overdramatic, intentionally so. And so here, in verse 12, Paul finishes defending his own gospel and once again returns to this theme of Christian liberty in the passage. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. And once again, so there we go, we were called to freedom and now no more condemnation, no more judgment, we can live however we want, right? No, finish reading the verse, verse 13, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. This is repeatedly emphasized through this passage. Again, 
the rejection of any kind of antinomian heresy that you may come up with, Paul is not saying, throw out the law, don't obey anything anymore because you're saved, you're justified. There's no more condemnation. That is not Paul's point. And anytime he mentions Christian freedom in this passage, he turns right back around with a reminder not to use their freedom for an opportunity for the flesh. That's literally what he says here in verse 13. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And Paul's including yet another warning against using freedom in Christ for evil or sin. Since we've now been set free from bondage, we must use our freedom to pursue righteousness in the Spirit. This point's going to be particularly driven home as we work towards verses 16 through 26. Paul says what in verses 13 and 14? But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So again, we see the point made that the Spirit most vividly demonstrates its work in the life of a believer through genuine love for others. Verse 15 is showing us the effect of living by the flesh. Paul warns that when individuals choose bondage and slavery to sin over walking with the Spirit, they should watch out lest they are consumed by one another. And so here, really, in verse 13, notice the parallel between verse 1 and verse 13. As you look at verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And notice verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. This is the repeated emphasis. Any time we talk about Christian liberty within Christian circles, it's almost as if this Christian liberty now grants me some kind of ability to pursue semi-taboo activities that formerly were out of bounds. That's not true. Paul is saying, as soon as you think you have this freedom in Christ to go live however you want, he turns right back around and says, no, 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 come back. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but actually do what? Through love, serve one another. Now, now as former slaves to sin, this kind of lifestyle wasn't possible. Lovingly serving each other wasn't possible for unregenerate, dead, selfish individuals. Now, through Christ, we've been freed for freedom. We've been freed so that we can live this way. We can live righteously. Once again, Titus 2, 11-15 emphasizes a very similar theme. This grace that we receive at salvation actually trains us. Grace serves a purpose in the life of a believer. And again, standing in stark contrast to the work of the law, the law cannot teach you. The law is outside of you. Grace is inside of you. Grace can teach you and train you to be more like Jesus. This is the point. This is Paul's point. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And in verse 15, this is the effect of those that live in the flesh. This is the effect that take advantage of that Christian liberty to pursue and gratify their own fleshly desires. Paul says, you will be consumed by one another. That is not the way you learn Christ. That is not the purpose of your Christian liberty. The purpose of your Christian liberty is to look more like Jesus. Before you were saved, you weren't able to do that. Take advantage of your Christian freedom, your Christian liberty, to look more like Jesus Christ. This is Paul's point. Then he continues in verses 16 through 26, now encouraging us to walk in the Spirit. Let's read this portion of the text. Paul says in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so I love this because you notice that very first word of verse 16. It indicates something critical to us. That word but is telling us, wait, there's something important about that last verse that I said that directly impacts the interpretation of this verse, right? Notice verse 15. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So if you live in an attempt to gratify your own fleshly desires, you will be consumed by one another. Verse 16, but I say, do something different. 
Instead of living that way, you're going to devour one another if you seek to gratify your desires, your fleshly desires, by using your Christian liberty in this way. Instead of doing that, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Amen, right? How often do you feel like that? This is Paul's point through this passage, is when a believer walks by the Spirit, by default, not give in to the flesh. This is, this is the whole point of walking by the Spirit. When they walk by the Spirit, you are by default not going to be walking in the flesh. That's the purpose of verses 17 and 18. Notice verse 17 again. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Notice again verse 17. That that verse begins with the word for. It's indicating the importance of the previous verse. That verse, 16, heavily speaks into verse 17. Paul says, walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. And why does he say that? Verse 17. For the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit, they're opposed to each other. So if you're walking by the Spirit, by default, you won't give in to the the desires of the flesh. This is Paul's point. Walk by the Spirit. Once again, as unregenerate people, this command is not possible for us to fulfill. You can't do this unless you've been saved. And as a recipient of grace, you're now required to do it. Use your Christian freedom for that purpose. Use your Christian freedom to walk in the Spirit where formerly you were held by the bondage of sin, unable to do that. And now you are able to do that. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now Paul, I think, intentionally writes this list in a sense to be, to be all-inclusive. But notice in verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Paul again is drawing attention to the mutually exclusive paths to salvation. A believer would be led by the Spirit, or they will submit themselves to the burden of the law. But these two methods do not work in tandem with one another. Now, now Paul's not saying, don't obey anything at all. Live however you want. Because notice again, he gives a whole list of things you shouldn't do as a believer. So that's not Paul's point. Paul's point is not, throw the law out, don't listen to any of it at all anymore. The law still serves a purpose. The point is, now having the Spirit indwelling you, you're able to obey the law where formerly you were not able to. Here's Paul's point in verse 20. He, he again, before you would begin to think, well, then there's nothing we have to do. There's nothing we have to avoid. We can do whatever we want and live however we want. There's no more condemnation, right? And you hear that so often in popular Christian cir- in circles. But here Paul's saying, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And so many people stop reading there. Paul doesn't stop there. He gives a whole list of things that as an individual being led by the Spirit, you shouldn't be engaged in. And if you are, it's probably because you're not led by the Spirit. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're not a believer if you live in this way because you're not being led by the Spirit. Believers who are led by the Spirit, individuals who are led by the Spirit, individuals who have that freedom in Christ and exercise it to keep in step with the Spirit, don't live with those characteristics marking any part of their life. And so here Paul continues, then in stark contrast to that list of characteristics with verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things, there is no law. This again, this word but at the beginning of verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit stand in stark contrast to the works of the flesh mentioned just a couple verses prior. These godly attitudes and characteristics should be descriptive of the Spirit-led life. And these characteristics, again, are only attainable with the help of the Holy Spirit and the training of grace 
in the life of a believer. Again, this is the purpose of Christian liberty. The purpose of Christian liberty is so that these characteristics might actually define our lives. This kind of lifestyle, a lifestyle marked by the characteristics listed between verses 22 and 23, was not possible while you were dead in your trespasses, an unregenerate individual. Paul says now, having the Spirit in you, walking in the Spirit, should actually look like this. He concludes verse 23 by saying, against such things there is no law. To call this comment by Paul an understatement would be selling it short. Paul uses this language to intentionally be sarcastic almost. He's saying he lists a bunch of things that are in essence, they are against the law, right, in verses 19 through 21. And what does he do in verse 22 and 23? He lists the fruits of the Spirit that should describe the life of a believer. And he says, in comparison to those things, there's no law against living this way. One commentator writes, he says, it draws our attention to the fact that the kind of conduct that Paul has outlined is that which lawmakers everywhere want to bring about. Paul's saying there is no law against living this way. Those individuals who are walking in the Spirit will notice that their life begins to look more and more like these characteristics. Grace trains the believer how to live this way. Is grace training you? Is grace training you this evening? How do you use your Christian liberty? In verse 24, we see this phrase, those who belong to Christ. Notice verse 24. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So while not fully glorified and still burdened with the flesh, the characteristics of the flesh should never describe someone who has been crucified with Christ. That former way of living has been put to death. That former way of living has been put to death. And again, notice verse 25 now. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Paul is simply restating his point from verse 16 in verse 25. Notice the parallelism. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Again, the stark contrast between the Spirit-led life and the life that gives in to the desires of the flesh. If we live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, and then don't become conceited. He lists again desires and passions that would describe a fleshly lifestyle being conceited, provoking, envying one another. This is a mark of a life that is led by the flesh, that is driven by fleshly passions. That should never be. If we are living by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. If we're living by the Spirit, we're walking with the Spirit. The Spirit is training us and teaching us and molding us more into the image of Jesus Christ. Paul, again, is simply restating his point from verse 16 in verse 25 and 26. Believers need to live their lives through the power of the Spirit. Commentator Leon Morris aptly writes, To be conceited, to be sure that we are always right, even if that means other people are always wrong, is a perennial temptation to believers. Right? This is something that so many of us struggle with. But what does Paul do as he closes out this passage? Let us not live that way because we should be keeping in step with the Spirit. The Spirit should be guiding us and directing us, molding us and shaping us. This is the glory. This is the privilege of true Christian liberty. As recipients of grace and as, as recipients of this true Christian liberty, this freedom in Christ, we must exercise it to obey Jesus Christ. So as Paul has argued for justification by grace through faith alone over the course of the book of Galatians, he, he masterfully ties together all of his arguments in chapter 5. His point is that believers who forsake the way of grace to return to the burden of the law and of sin have essentially rejected a pardon and now have no part with Christ. Paul then moves to remind the Galatian believers of just how well they had started in the faith and his confidence that they would not ultimately be led away 
by such foolish doctrine. Then continuing in verses 13 through 15, Paul notes the importance of believers using their freedom in Christ for righteousness. And he warns of the danger that awaits those who use their freedom in Christ as a self-serving license. Right? This is the point throughout the passage. The comparison of those who use their freedom in Christ to pursue Christ and to love others and the comparison of those who use freedom in Christ to pursue selfish desires. Ultimately, he comes to in verses 16 through 26 saying, those people likely don't have the Spirit, and that's why they're not walking with the Spirit. Those people who live that way will not inherit the kingdom of God. Finally, in verses 16 through 26, Paul concludes the chapter with a clear picture of what it looks like to live a life in step with the Spirit versus a life that is characterized by works of the flesh. I don't know if anywhere in our Bible we have a more clear comparison, a literal listing of attributes that describe the flesh and a listing, not one verse later, of attributes that describe a spirit-led life. The point is to show the difference between an individual who understands how to properly apply their Christian liberty. I began the message with a story of a man who rejected a pardon. And given the peculiar and unusual nature of the situation, Wilson's case was eventually taken before the U.S. Supreme Court. Remember, he had rejected this pardon that had been given by President Andrew Jackson. The U.S. Supreme Court handed down a written determination that was as follows. The court cannot give the prisoner the benefit of the pardon unless he claims the benefit of it. It is a grant to him. It is his property, and he may accept it or not as he pleases. Chief Justice John Marshall aptly stated, A pardon is an act of grace, proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution of the laws, but delivery is not completed without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, and we have no power in a court to force it on him. Ultimately, many times as believers, we find ourselves committing similarly foolish acts. Having been pardoned from the bondage of sin and the law, so many times we find ourselves wandering back into slavery. True Christian liberty is never to be used for selfish gain, but rather, Christian liberty, rightly applied, enables and empowers us to serve others selflessly and to live righteously.